Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with David Wellington, author of The Last Astronaut, published by Orbit in 2019, and also on the Arthur C. Clarke Award shortlist. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Uh, so first, um, considering, so I know you've written a lot of novels, but as far as this particular one, with all the ideas, you know, rolling around in your head as an author, how did this one sort of rise up above uh, the rest of them and get written? Well, so um, the thing is, I've never really been sure what I write, um, whether I'm a horror writer or a science fiction writer. Uh, when I was a kid, I was a huge science fiction fan. And then uh, when I published my first novel, Monster Island, in 2005, that was a horror novel. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, sure, I'll just publish a horror novel, then I'll publish a science fiction novel, then I'll do fantasy, then I'll do thrillers, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that people really want to put you in a box. They really want you to stay stay put. Right. So I ended up writing horror novels for years uh, while still being a huge science fiction fan. And so over my career, I've managed to branch out and do other genres, absolutely. But this was kind of bringing everything home. It was science fiction and horror and put together in one thing. Uh, so the in- main influences on it were kind of funny. So one of the big influences, which is not too funny, was uh, Creepypasta. I was watching what was happening in Creepypasta online mm. and just getting really excited about this kind of like new kind of horror mm. and thinking, how could you do that in a novel, right? Because it's a very, like it, uh, on, on the surface, it's just all prose, just text. Mm. But the way a creepypasta is presented online is so much more intimate and personal. Uh, this is a story some teenager is telling you over their computer, right? This is not some established author with some major novel, you know, release. This is some crazy story that makes no sense and you're just hearing it and reacting to it immediately. And I wanted to see if I could capture something of that mm-hmm. in a novel. Uh, the other major influence was the movie I, Tanya, which is a great movie with Margot Robbie about uh, Tanya Harding, the figure skater, yeah. uh, which sounds funny, but <laughs> yeah. it actually uh, – that, that movie blew my mind because it has this great mix of the characters speaking directly to the camera and then immediately just turning around and going into scenes of the movie, mm-hmm. like reenacting Tanya Harding's life, and just seamlessly. And I thought – that was so much fun. So The Last Astronaut has a ton of these little confessionals in it where the characters are describing the action or their emotional reactions to the, to the action, uh, you know, just stepping away from the plot for half a second to say, this is when it got really scary. So, hmm. yeah, it was, it, it was, it came from a lot of different places that just all kind of coalesced together. So is this, uh, as far as the level of sci-fi, is it a hard sci-fi sort of, uh, or, uh, more, more softer or how, how do you approach that part? This is extremely hard sci-fi. This was absolutely my intention was to create a story of what it might actually be like, uh, the first time we meet aliens. Mm-hmm. So it is 
as scientifically accurate as I can make it. Mm-hmm. It is based on, specifically, it is based on uh, real technologies that NASA is building right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the at least the humans are flying around in in real real spaceships. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is set in 2055. Okay. But I kind of extrapolated a little bit, but for the most part, everything in this book is something that we could build and send into space right now. Mm-hmm. So if, if aliens showed up tomorrow, this is how we would react to it, I think. So, and the physics of the alien spaceship and the biology of the aliens themselves and so on is all absolutely as accurate and scientifically plausible as I could make it. That being said, of course, nothing is ever perfect uh, when you do hard science fiction, and it is... It's one of the toughest things of doing the genre is knowing you're going to get a ton of stuff wrong. (laughs) And somewhere out there, there's an exobiologist who is reading this book and just shaking their head and then throwing the book across the room. I know it. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, that's fine. (laughs) You you kind of have to accept that after a while. Mm -hmm. You also know that you're, if you're, anybody who writes science fiction knows you're not actually trying to predict the future that the future is going to be so much weirder than you thought it was. Uh, for instance, the book makes no reference whatsoever to a coronavirus outbreak in the yeah. 2020s. <laughs> um, yeah. <that's, laughs> so, so since you said you um, always wanted to write or do science fiction, create science fiction, was it hard sci-fi that you've always wanted to do, or did that just happen to be what you did now? Yeah, no, I love every kind of science fiction. I the My... Love the science fiction started with Star Wars, which is about as far as you can get from hard science fiction. Uh, you know, and finding out why Star Wars wasn't realistic was like one of my first science fiction experiences. You know, finding out that no, that uh, Luke, Luke Skywalker's uh, uh, X-Wing would not make whooshing sounds as it flies through space. <laughs> yeah, and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I saw Star Wars in 1977 when I was very young and I was six years old mm-hmm. and I went home and I wanted more star Wars. That was all I wanted in the entire world. And there was no more star Wars at the time. You couldn't even rent it on video cassette, right? Yeah. You saw it in the theater or you didn't see it at all. Like people think about the, the star Wars holiday special as this horrible flop that in this, terrible thing at the time everybody loved it because it was just more star wars it didn't matter if it was bad right it didn't matter if it was so so dumb it was more star wars anyway so i wanted more star wars there was none none to be had except to play with my action figures and so i started reading science fiction books which at first i was just horrified by because they were not like star wars at all (laughs) Uh, you know, like Asimov and Zelazny and, and Arthur C. Clarke especially, like, these guys were writing about actual science. And I discovered that was fascinating too. So I've always had a love of all of the different genres, everything from the craziest fantasy all the way up to real hardcore science, you know, hard science fiction. Um, and everything in between. I, I just, I love stories. That, that was my what I discovered in the end was I loved stories more than anything. That Star Wars was a great story. And so I loved how stories worked. So then tell me about this particular book. We've touched on a little bit about it already. Can you tell me what what you're able to about the protagonist, the setting, the conflict? Sure, yeah. So The Last Astronaut is the story of uh, an astronaut named Sally Jensen who, who was supposed to be the first woman to land on Mars. Mm-hmm. 
and that was going to happen in 2035. And unfortunately, there was an accident on board the spaceship on the way to Mars, and they had to turn around and come back. So Sally never got to go to Mars. And because of this disaster, basically NASA has fallen apart. Uh, by 2055, there is no more uh, manned space flight for you know the American space program. It's it's they're still sending out satellites, they're still sending out probes to Jupiter or whatever, but people don't go to space anymore. Um, and Sally Jensen is is retired. She's living in Florida, kind of uh, doing a scuba, working as a scuba diver, um, and. She gets a call saying that they really need her in Houston. So she goes back to her old job and she says, you know, what do you need me for? I'm, I'm old now. I'm 55 years old, uh, which is old, very old for an astronaut. Uh, what could you possibly want from me? And the deal is they haven't trained any astronauts since her. So when they discover that there's an alien spaceship coming towards Earth, suddenly they need her again. <laughs> <laughs> pretty badly. Yeah. So it's the story of her putting together a crew to go uh, meet with these aliens in space. Uh, the aliens ship is extremely large. It's 80 kilometers long, which is about 50 miles, and it's uh, gigantic. It is heading straight towards Earth, <laughs> and it refuses to acknowledge any radio signals. So what it is is a mystery, and what's going to happen to Earth is a mystery, and uh, I, I won't spoil any more than that. Okay. I'm speaking with David Wellington, author of The Last Astronaut. You can find more information about his work on Twitter at Last Trilobite. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. So hopefully this question doesn't touch on anything that might spoil it, but as far as the research for the book, you know, you did talk about some of the technology. Um, did you dive into like na any kind of NASA archives or, or their publications or anything like that? Well, Saying dive in means I haven't been doing that for my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay. Uh, basically, yeah, I have been following NASA since I was a kid. I actually, uh, after seeing Star Wars, I actually wrote to NASA and asked what uh, what it would take to become an astronaut. Mm -hmm. And NASA, at least back in the early '80s, was incredibly gracious. The NASA, and to to this day, because I've spoke with them about this book as well. But uh, NASA is a, it, it, it's a government organization that works for the people of the United States. And they take that mission very seriously. So if a six-year-old kid writes to NASA and says, I'm interested in becoming an astronaut, it doesn't matter if that kid has no chance. Like, I was never going to be an astronaut. They didn't care. They sent me a huge packet of glossy 8x10 photographs of the Apollo capsule and Cape Canaveral and pictures of the moon and Jupiter and Mars and all these things. This is beautiful, expensive, glossy photographs. Just this gigantic manila folder just stuffed with these things. Shows up in the mail. And I was in love right away. I just, I've just been enchanted by NASA ever since. Mm -hmm. So for this book, I ended up actually talking to two astronauts, uh, 
retired female astronauts mm -hmm. about their experience of what it was like to go to space. And I, I gotta tell you, it, I, I was starstruck. Like if, if Mark Hamill called me tomorrow and said, Hey, I liked your book. Do you want to talk to me for half an hour? Mm -hmm. I would love to do that. Mm -hmm. But if an actual astronaut calls you on the phone, it's, it's, it's just, you, you can't imagine like how awestruck you get yeah. and how, how, unworthy you feel right yeah. especially because the, the you know nasa astronauts are absolutely the cream of the crop these are the people who have passed incredible physical tests they are incredibly well educated they have to have master's degrees or doctorates you know they 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 they're just like you talk to these people and it's like you're talking to a better species of human beings it's just they're they're so accomplished and so calm and humble too like mm -hmm. they don't ever think no one ever says oh yeah i went to space what did you do you yeah. know it, it's it's always like hey do you want to talk about space i want to talk about space i love space mm -hmm. uh and and they're so excited and so helpful and they just both of the astronauts i spoke to i had like 10 questions lined up that I thought would take half an hour of their time. Mm -hmm. We ended up both times we ended up like talking for three hours and oh, just wow. like going on and on and just coming up with the stuff I never thought to imagine to ask. And, and just, I got so much information. The book, the first draft of this book was very much inspired by like the Martian. Mm -hmm. So it was very technical and very dry. It was all, you know, then I used my GR4 multi-tool to remove the access panel on the computer module, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. This book, the finished book is nothing like that because I talked to these astronauts and they, I expected a lot of acronyms. I expected a lot of like science speak and, you know, military jargon. And there was nothing like that. They mm -hmm. wanted to talk about what it's like to be a human being in space, mm -hmm. what it's actually like to feel gravity go away, what it's like to look down at earth mm -hmm. from a height see you know that there are no borders and that you know it's so that everything looks so fragile uh they all these astronauts turn this story from this very dry technical readout into a story about people experiencing real things in space and it just it made the book so much better yeah and i'll take this moment to uh shamelessly plug my other podcast technology in space which you can guess, right. what, <laughs> which you can guess what it's about. But um, I did interview John Harrington. He's an astronaut, and I, I, uh, or you know, former astronaut, and I had the same experience that you just described um, yeah. about their their abilities and their uh, approach and attitude about it. What was the most? So when you were speaking to these two astronauts, um, what about their experiences would you say most surprised you? Um, just how little time they had to actually think or feel about what was going on. <laughs> like, uh, you know, they, they keep the astronauts very busy when they're up in space. There's always something to do every second of the day, whether it's just like wa walking on a treadmill or it's, you know, fixing a computer or take, you know, taking data from an experiment. Um, so they were just constantly, you know, they were just constantly busy. And also like they talked about, you know, they barely had time to eat. Uh, on the space shuttle uh, missions especially, they would skip meals because there was just too much to do. And if there was nothing scientific or mission-oriented to do, you went and looked out the window. 
Mm-hmm. You didn't waste time eating. <laughs> you didn't waste time talking to people. Yeah. You, the, the best thing in the world was to just have five seconds to look out a window mm-hmm. and see Earth from space. They, they, they both described that as just the ultimate rush, of just seeing that and knowing where you were for five seconds. And then you got right back to work. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was kind of amazing just like how focused the astronauts really are. Uh, you often think about astronauts as they're just in the capsule there or on the space station for the sake of having people there and everything could really be done from earth by somebody pressing a button. And that's just not true at all. Mm. Like you absolutely do need people in space to do these complicated things Mm. because the robots can't do it on their own and the people pressing buttons on earth can't actually see what's going on. So you've got to have real dedicated people up there working 24 hours a day. And yeah, actually, both this interview I told you about in a recent um, article about uh, a Russian spacecraft trying to dock with um, the International Space Station, both instances they had they had to take manual control of of something right. at some point because something you know otherwise things wouldn't have gone well. Um, yeah, and t- talk about a horror story, right? You are in space, and the people on Earth say, hey, we can't figure this out. Can you just do it for us? And so you've got millions of dollars of hardware coming straight at you at high speed, and you got a little joystick. <laughs> you know, yeah. You're just like, uh, okay, I'll just dock this spaceship, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so what uh, were there any other um, maybe science agencies or um... – you know, any of these commercial space companies that you got any um, ideas or information from that was useful? Uh, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't approach SpaceX or anything like that. I might be, I should have, cause there's a, there's a kind of SpaceX, uh, in the book. Mm-hmm. There's an organization called K-Space, which is kind of obvious, but yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah. it's a, it's a Korean company. Mm-hmm. And they're like the competition with NASA. But they're, if you read the book, you'll find out that K-Space, doesn't need i didn't need a lot of information about how they worked because well let's just say some bad things happened this <laughs> okay okay we won't yeah um it is a horror it's a horror novel after all <laughs> okay okay though i i recently spoke to an editor who said that i asked about sci-fi horror and she said um it's it's horror but it's a sci-fi sub-genre of horror like horror is absorbs all in a sense, you know, like whatever else it might be, it's still primarily horror. <laughs> well, I hope, you know, I get a lot of people reading my book and saying, Oh, it's a great science fiction novel, but I wasn't scared. And I'm like, I, I, I just, I can't believe it. And the thing is that horror is so subjective. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you write a horror novel, you are writing your own fears. Mm-hmm. So without going into too much detail, there's a lot of darkness and, weird noises and scary things in this book that would leave me absolutely petrified. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of science, you know, it's not, it's like I say, I, this is much more of a human story than it is about, you know, the technology, but there's some science in here. There's some real science and I'm hoping it works on both fronts. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I can see an editor saying that about, Horror, you know, horror, the, the science fiction is a subcategory of the horror. Like for the movie Alien, I think that's very much true. Mm. Uh, and I love Alien. Do not get me wrong; that was absolutely one of my big influences oh, for yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, like, I think 
what I've done here, I think, can be enjoyed by people who are not horror fans, mm-hmm. and it can be enjoyed by people who are not science fiction fans. And, you know, of course I'm going to say that. I want everybody to buy the book. <laughs> but I, I think that, you know, when we put things in these, like, really narrow genres and these subgenres, I think we do, our, do ourselves a disservice. Mm-hmm. Like if 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 the only thing you ever wanted to read was a a, a horror science fiction hybrid novel, mm-hmm. like there are maybe like ten good books that you could read, mm-hmm. and then you'd just be done. Mm-hmm. You would never read another book. Yeah. I don't think there's anybody like that. I think that the, the like I growing up, I would devour Stephen King novels, mm-hmm. like the seven hundred page long Stephen King novels. I would get through in a weekend. Mm. And then immediately turn around and read some more Arthur C. Clarke or, you know, Octavia Butler or Samuel Delaney. Like, anything I could get my hands on. Any book I could get my hands on when I was a kid, I would read. Uh, and I didn't worry about, oh, am I being faithful to my genre? I don't, and I don't think any reader really thinks that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so we've mentioned a bunch of things that inspire you. Um, I was going to ask more about the horror side now. So, as you mentioned, Stephen King, there's the creepy pasta, which you kind of, you know, you like that, uh, that, uh, feel. Um, what other horror, uh, sort of influences or inspires you? Well, like I said, the movie Alien was huge for this, uh, you know, and the whole Aliens franchise. Uh, I loved every one of those movies, even the dumb ones, and uh, you know, and and I, I just enjoy them so much. Uh, in terms of my horror influences, like Stephen King is honestly not that big an influence on how I write. Uh, I read all of his books as a kid, so of course they're in there somewhere. But his thing was very much taking these supernatural events and kind of like hiding them behind this suburban facade. Uh, histories are all about like, you know, you can't quite see the vampire cause it's behind a white picket fence, a white picket fence. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted, I've always wanted my horror to be up front and center. My, my vampire novels are absolutely gory and disgusting. And there is no question that they are monsters, right? Mm. Uh, so I'd say Clive Barker was a much bigger influence on me as a kid, um, in terms of my, my horror writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also just like Edgar Allan Poe, like Edgar Allan Poe knew you, you don't leave anything on the table. Like when you read Edgar Allan Poe's story, he's like, I'm going to give you everything I thought of. And then some other things that I thought of while I was writing this down. Yeah. And <laughs> it's just straight up, you know, I'm going to entertain you and I don't care how I get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't care, you know, what the critics think. I don't care what it, the future generations are going to say. I'm just going to tell you an entertaining story. And that has always been a huge influence on me. Uh, and of course, H.P. Lovecraft, although I hate saying that now, I, especially in recent years, I just, I've reevaluated Lovecraft and so much of it is just gross. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't mean, I don't mean blood and guts gross. I mean racism gross. Right. And it's, there's no, like, people say, oh, he was a product of his time. No, he wasn't. Right. There were a right. lot of people in the 20s and 30s who were actually starting to think about, you know, is racism bad? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there were people in the, in the 20s and 30s who were starting to say, hey, maybe we should be nice to people. Maybe we should just, like, all try to get along. Mm-hmm. Whereas H.P. Lovecraft was like, nope. There is one exactly one kind of people that are worth a damn, and everybody else is just monsters from hell. Yeah. And it's just unreadable sometimes. Yeah. So I hate to say 
Lovecraft was an influence. Obviously, he was. You know, I, I devoured those stories as a kid. I ate, every, I read everything he ever wrote, all the poems, even the really nasty stuff, and that's in my head somewhere. It's right. floating around back there. Uh, I absolutely set out in this book to make sure that I was not retreading that kind of ground, though. I mean, like you know, this was one of one of the things I wanted to make very clear in this book is that by 2055. Like, there are people of every possible race, creed, denomination, ethnicity, you know, sexuality, gender, etc., mm-hmm. working at NASA. Like, this is, and nobody, it's not that nobody thinks about it anymore, but it's like, it's accepted by this point. But in another, you know, in another 40 years, whatever it is, 35 years, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Right. <laughs> I, ma- math was not my strong point. Uh, yeah, another 35 years, we're just not going to be having these arguments anymore in the same way we do now. I, I, I really hope that's the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on the same page with you there. Um, yeah. Definitely. Uh, something you mentioned, actually, about sci-fi and horror, Predator popped into my mind. You know, that's, oh, sure. that, that's sci-fi, but more horror. You know, even though yeah, I would say yeah, I'd say that absolutely, Predator is more horror, and then it's got some great science fiction moments in it, mm-hmm. um, especially the sequels. Uh, Predator Two is a weird movie. I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend it to anybody, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got this. It's got some weird racism up front, but mm-hmm. then it's kind of like goes back on that. I, I don't know. It's it's a weird movie, like I say, yeah. but there is a fantastic scene where the main character finds the Predator's spaceship, and for the first time you get to see like the alien spaceship and what's inside of it, and there's like all these alien skulls hanging on the walls as like trophies, yeah. and one of them is a it's it's a xenomorph from the Alien movies, mm-hmm. um, which is where the whole Alien versus Predator thing started, yeah. and they put it they put it on the wall as a goof apparently, and it just turned into a franchise. <laughs> so uh, there are some incredible science fiction moments in all the Predator movies mm-hmm. that, but it doesn't like it doesn't. Care it like it, it, it? It's not nobody on on the set. I'm sure, and the director never said, "Oh, I hope the science fiction fans like this one. I hope the horror fans like this one." They knew they were making an entertaining movie. They were they knew that they were going to make a movie that people would want to see, yeah. and they didn't get hung up on on what title you know what uh, genres you should call it. Mm-hmm. So this particular question, I know you I know you like everything, but perhaps there is a little. One way or the other, as far as monsters, do you prefer your monsters humanoid or more just like totally weird and and different? Oh, they both absolutely have their place. Mm -hmm. It it depends on the story you're telling. Mm -hmm. Now, you're asking me my personal preference, and I'll get to that in a second. But as a writer, Mm -hmm. you have to choose the right one for your story. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, like you, you can tell a story about like Godzilla but it's not going to be a story about – it's not going to be like a cozy murder mystery story about Godzilla, right? <laughs> uh, you can't You can't do uh, – you know, I guess you can do vampires and zombies pretty much any way you want. Mm-hmm. That's the great thing about zombies is that you can put them pretty much in anything and they work. Mm-hmm. Um, so my personal preference is absolutely supernatural monsters. I, I uh, The one thing I can't stand in horror that I don't – like me personally, I don't enjoy mm-hmm. – is torture porn mm. and like mo- and um 
home invasion movies. Hmm. That doesn't do it for me. I just find that tense and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying that like you can't make a good one. I'm saying that for me personally, I, it doesn't get my juices going the way a good horror movie should. Like mm-hmm. I want, I want the supernatural element. I want something to be weird about it, mm-hmm. not just this is ripped from true crime or this happened last week. Like that's that's not what I'm looking for. I want to get out of my head. I want to get out of my life for two hours, whatever, however long the movie goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, however long it takes to read the book and, and just not be here. So if you're going to tell me a story about somebody who breaks into my house and like murders me slowly, mm-hmm. it's just, that's scary. It's absolutely scary. It's tense and I don't like it. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I absolutely, I absolutely love monster, like actual monsters, like monster monsters. Mm-hmm. So, is there any any uh, non horror, non sci fi stuff out there that uh, that really has a draw for you? Oh, like I said, I mean, I love everything. I uh, the fantasy novels of Scott Lynch are some of my favorite books I've ever read. You know the uh, the. Uh, Jonas Cabal Necromancer stories, uh, John Howard, uh, are just so good. Uh, I guess that's technically horror, but they're much more dark fantasy. <laughs> they're also hilariously funny. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love, uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld books. I, I can't get enough of those. I reread them all the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I just, I'll, I'll read anything you put in front of me. Like, I'm just, the action of reading is pleasurable to me. And then the actual quality of the, of the book is secondary. So, like, I find myself all the time reading books and go, oh, this is just awful. This is so bad. There's only four more chapters to go. Okay, I'll finish it. You know? uh, so, yeah, I've just recently been, like, rereading all of Michael Moorcock's fantasy novels. And, like, those are so psychedelic and crazy, but they're also just, like, deadly slow and wooden sometimes hmm. not all the time the, the elric books especially just fly along and they're amazing hmm. but i was i was reading some of his early science fiction stuff and i was just like i, I even i can't do this <laughs> it's just too 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 slow but yeah and and then uh you know so uh, i i hate saying that because i love michael moorcock so much the guy he had a great quote which i can't remember the actual quote but i'll paraphrase it which was he he said that he knew that he'd never wrote a great novel, but he hoped he wrote a lot of interesting ones. Hmm. And I think that is so, that is absolutely the way any writer should be thinking about it. You know, don't worry about writing the great American novel. Don't worry about writing something that's going to be loved for hundreds of years. You, you write the book that interests you, that makes you want to read it and it'll work. People will enjoy it. I'm speaking with David Wellington, author of the last astronaut, you can find more information about his work on Twitter at Last Trilobite. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. So speaking about, you know, writing, uh, would you say there's anything out of the ordinary compared to maybe other writers that you do to, um, 
to complete drives or the final work? I, you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot is what kind of music I listen to while I'm writing. And this is, you might as well ask me, you know, what flavor of octopus do I ride to work in the morning? It's like, <laughs> I can't imagine listening to music while writing. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of writers do it. Mm-hmm. I know it's probably most writers are listening to like movie soundtracks or classical music or something mm-hmm. while they're writing and it helps them focus their minds. Mm-hmm. Music dry. I can't have music anywhere near me while I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I, if, if it's music with lyrics, I will start typing out the lyrics as if it's my own words. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it's instrumental music, I start writing to the, like the rhythm of the music, mm-hmm. which is always wrong for whatever I'm writing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I need like absolute silence to write. And that's, hasn't always been the case. There was a period in the early 2000s where I would write on a train. I would write in the bathroom of a, a hotel room so I didn't wake up the, you know, the person I was staying with. Um, it used to be I could write hanging upside down, you know, in a factory making, you know, drum kits, whatever. <laughs> but now, nowadays I need concentration, especially in the last couple of months. Like since the pandemic hit, to get any writing done at all, I need to have everything just right. I need my office set up. It has to be cold, like freezing cold. Hmm. It has to be silent. Hmm. <laughs> and I have to just look at the screen and say, okay, I'm going to do this now. As soon as I finish checking Twitter three more times, you know, <laughs> as soon as I look at this website. So I will sometimes just turn off my Wi-Fi. Hmm. Uh, you know, and of course I can just turn it back on at any time, but the actually, the act of turning it back on is enough to like say, okay, no, maybe I shouldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, and get back to writing. Yeah. I need to concentrate. So even though you don't listen to music while writing, considering the book, so the book itself, The Last Astronaut, would you say it has a soundtrack that could go with it? Interesting question. A soundtrack for the last astronaut. Jeez. I think, yes, I could see, um, a lot of like synth wave hmm. in this. Absolutely. I'm a child of the eighties. Hmm. That has never really left my blood. Like I grew up listening to synthesizers. It just sounds like the future to me. Hmm. <laughs> as cheesy and as old-fashioned as they can sound now, mm-hmm. start starting like a good synthesizer riff. I'm there. I'm thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, I can see the scenes of like the astronauts floating through space in their spacesuits, approaching this alien ship, and just like you know, just like mm-hmm. really like deep bassy synth wave mm-hmm. i you know i'm not going to give you an actual band name or a song name i'm just imagining it now in my head i'm mm-hmm. imagining like this it's not even a song it's just like atonal like chords on a synthesizer just you know does uh that, that, that soundtrack to my book right there <laughs> that makes me think of tron actually the original movie oh interesting yeah absolutely Similar. tron sounds like what I think science fiction sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you've been writing for quite a while. Has your approach to writing changed over time? Well, when I was six years old, I used to use a typewriter and now I use a word <laughs> processor. Is uh, that what you mean? Uh, no, it's, uh, yeah, of course it has. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I like to, 
push myself with everything I write. I, I don't ever want to write a book and go, yeah, that's good enough. You know, that's about as good as the last one. Fine. Ship it off. You know, I don't ever want to get to that point. Um, I, every time I write a new book, I think to myself, what am I going to do this time I didn't do last time? What am I going to do better than I did last time? And so, to me, it has constantly been a voyage of, of just improvement and discovery. And it's, that's half the fun of it, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is push, pushing your muscles past the limit and seeing just how far you can actually go. Mm-hmm. And like my early books did not have very well developed characters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were, there were a lot of people with guns running around the woods shooting at monsters, <laughs> uh, which is fun. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Those books are very fun, mm-hmm. but the characters weren't particularly fleshed out mm-hmm. and i my more recent books i'm starting to like really kind of figure out all the tricks of that and all the ways to make character scenes interesting mm-hmm. uh so yeah I, my, my process and my my the way i work the the way i think about my own books it's changing all the time it changes with everything i do mm-hmm. it's interesting have you done other uh work that non-writing work uh, that's influenced how or what you write? Well, so when I wrote my first book, uh, Monster Island, which is a zombie book, it's uh, zombies in New York City, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had just moved to New York City, and I was I got a like a temp job, basically, working at the United Nations, mm-hmm. which was fascinating, because we just had... It was a boring, boring job. It was data entry. Mm-hmm. But we had just all these weird publications coming through the office. So the... That book, actually, it's interesting. It started out because I had read a report from some organization in the UN about guns and talking about how in Somalia there were more guns than there were people. Hmm. And so I wrote Monster Island with this idea that when the zombies came, those countries that had more guns than people were going to do okay, <laughs> whereas the the countries that had very strong gun controls were in trouble. Mm. Now, don't get me started on my politics, because they are not there. Yeah. <laughs> that is not my politics, especially not today. Mm. But at the time, and also at the time, the, in the United States, there were less guns than there were people. I think that's actually changed now. Mm. Um, so, you know, this was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, like that job got me exposed to just so many crazy stories about things that were actually happening around the world. Mm-hmm. And those absolutely became part of my zombie novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the, cause we were hearing about just horrible wars and famines and just plagues all over the planet. And disease. It, it really did feel like the world was always ending somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, it was a lot of as, as horrible as it sounds now, it was just a lot of really good fodder for writing about a, you know, a post-apocalyptic novel. Did you, uh, did you bother your coworkers with, uh, your various ideas saying, wow, what about zombies and this and that? And they, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Ab- no, absolutely. It was, like I say, it was, it was a dead end temp job and doing data entry. <laughs> so there was a lot of downtime and I actually ended up writing the book while I was on that job. <laughs> so yeah, the UN kind of paid for me to write that book. Um, <laughs> well, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they want royalties, they can let me know. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good PR, good news story. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, somehow I think the UN doesn't want to associate themselves with my very gory zombie novel. <laughs> <laughs> we want our peace. Um, so for this, for The Last Astronaut, um, did you sort of overwrite and have to edit out a bunch of it? Or when you were done, did you have to start fleshing out what you wanted? This book nearly killed me because I had to rewrite it from scratch about six times. Hmm. And that is not normally how I work. I normally, I do two or three drafts tops, and this was six drafts. And it was, oh my God, it was so hard just going back and starting over from absolute scratch. The, like I say, the first version of it was an incredibly dry technical story like The Martian. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, I loved The Martian. It's, it's, it's really fun mm -hmm. to see how, uh, that guy could stay alive and, and how they got him back. Mm -hmm. Um, and all the details are really interesting, especially if you love space. You know, if, if you're an astronaut person like me and like, apparently like you, Chris, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that book is great, but it was, ended up not being, the story I wanted to tell because it wasn't scary. Mm. It wasn't scary at all. It was just, you know, then we used our screwdrivers to open this access hatch and the monster fell away off the spaceship and blah, blah, blah. You know, and it was just, it wasn't going to work. Mm. Um, then I, then I talked to the ast, you know, I wrote a second draft and then I talked to the astronauts mm. and then, so I had to write a third draft because <laughs> I got so much good information from them. It changed everything in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, it went through a, a process. Of, it went through several different editors. Uh, the uh, yeah, unfortunately, the, it got orphaned, which means that my editor, my first editor on the book, left the company in the middle of the editing process for absolutely personal reasons that you know I've not. I'm not complaining. It wasn't. Hmm. It was absolutely understandable. Um, but that meant that for a couple months, I didn't have an editor on this book, hmm. and the publication date got moved back by a year and all kinds of things. And so I ended up rewriting the book. Then a new editor came in and, and they had their own ideas. Another editor came on because it's the orbit is a joint UK US publishing house. Okay. So you end up, you get an editor for the UK edition and the US edition. Oh, wow. uh, and so there were just a lot of people had a lot of thoughts all of which really helped. The, everybody who worked on this project contributed enormously to its success. Like, I am so happy with the final product, but it did feel sometimes like too many cooks, right? It was, it was just people giving me different ideas from every different direction. And in the end, it's my book. I wrote it. <laughs> you know, this is the one I wanted to write. Yeah. But oh my God, getting, getting there, it was, it was tough. It was a tough, it was a tough journey. And, uh, when I finished it, I just went and curled up in my bed and just tried not to think about anything for a long time. <laughs> this, this sounds like a horror novel of sorts. It was. It, there were times when I thought the book was going to kill me. I, I, and I, I don't even mean that jokingly. Like I, I, my health was just weird. It was suffering uh, because of this book. Uh, and I guess that's what it takes. You know, everybody talks about suffering for your art. Mm -hmm. Apparently, yes, you do. <laughs> yeah. I guess the only thing left would have been for the book to like literally reach out and grab you by the throat. Um. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know, the thing is, like I say all that. This is 
probably going to be my most successful book yet. Like this is, it's sold really well. Mm-hmm. And I got shortlisted for this award, which is one of the top awards in science fiction. Mm-hmm. That blew my mind. I was not expecting that. Like I knew the book was good, but I didn't know it was that good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like, no matter, we, we won't know for a while yet uh, who wins that award, mm-hmm. but I, my, they said this group, the Clark award, said your book is one of the top six science fiction novels of the year mm-hmm. like i i am so humbled by this yeah. there are so many great great books out there right now there are so many authors who are just doing amazing stuff and for somebody to say yours is one of the top six it just it blew my mind i and i realized all that suffering and all that pain it paid off like it worked the yeah. the book is good yeah yeah no yeah well done um thanks the thing is, as a writer, you never know. You mm-hmm. can't tell if what you've done is any good or not. Yeah. Uh, you have to have other people tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's nice when they do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'll say. Um, so a bit of a whimsical question now. Um, mm-hmm. When you were young, was there a power technology or fictional setting you yearned for either to have or to be part of? You know, I just wanted to be in space. I wanted to be able to fly around in the stars faster than light. I wanted to be in Star Wars, but not necessarily, you know, get shot at by stormtroopers. <laughs> um, you know, I wanted, I wanted to live in space. I absolutely thought. So this is the thing. I, I'm 49 years old. When I was a kid, uh, the space shuttle program had just started, and it seemed like NASA was going to keep going back to space in bigger and better ways forever. And that by the time I was 50 years old, there would be colonies on the moon and probably on Mars and that you could choose to live in space and that, you know, we'd have a future out there and we would eventually get to other planets, other stars, and that it was going to be this real human drama. And that just fell apart. By the end of the 80s, it was clear we weren't going back to the moon no time soon. Right. Uh, you know, that the space shuttle program was a disaster. I mean, I don't like it was inc- incredible piece of technology, but mm-hmm. if two of them blew up in, in the, in the run of that program, that's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. That's that technology was not ready. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and just the loss of life is just horrifying. The, the, especially when you, you talk to these astronauts, some of, and some of the astronauts I talked to were on the space shuttle mm-hmm. and it's like, these are incredible people. If we had lost them in those tragedies, mm-hmm. oh my God. But, you know, and the people we did lose, just what could they have, what would they have gone on to do, you know? Right. So it was, the, it just felt like the space race was ending and the, the space program was falling apart. Uh, and that's kind of where this book came from, this idea of the last astronaut, that we go through these weird cycles with space technology where we get all excited about them and we pour money into them mm-hmm. and then we just get, kind of get bored mm-hmm. as a as a country you know as a as a as the human race mm-hmm. we just get bored and we decide that space isn't that interesting anymore and so we stop yeah and then 20 years later we pick it up again and we're back to square one mm-hmm. and so there's no real progress like we haven't gone back to the moon since 19 the 1970s yeah yeah and it's if we do get back to the moon in the in the 2020s we will be we will be duplicating work we've already done. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's just so sad to me that that's the case. I know that there are probably better things to spend money on. There are probably, you know, I'm sure that you can make an argument that we're better off sending robots to Jupiter mm-hmm. rather than astronauts to space. Yeah. And, and there, there, it, it's a real argument. It's, it's a logical argument that it does make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But it's just, you lose all of the drama. You lose the story mm-hmm. of it. And I think that's the hardest part for me was losing the story and having to accept the fact that I was never going to be an astronaut, much less I was never going to go to Mars, you know. And, yeah, so you I, I, you asked me a whimsical question about what yeah. kind of technology I would have liked. And the answer is I would have liked a space program that kept going. Um, that was what I always wanted as a kid. And, and I still kind of think wistfully about it all the time now. Did did any of this, because I felt like this real emotional, you know, emotion there, did any of that make it into this, into this book, this, this sort of feeling of loss? Oh, absolutely. That's like the whole, the whole deal with my main character, Sally Jensen. She was supposed to go to Mars. She was going to be the first woman to walk on Mars, right? And, uh, and then it didn't happen. Like they had to turn around and go home. Yeah. And it's through no fault of her own, but, you know, she it's her mission and she took responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so for her to get this second chance to go meet with these aliens in space, it's – it's I, at first I thought that would just be like the best thing ever, right? You get the second chance. How often do you get that in life? How often do you get to be the hero again? Mm-hmm. And I realized, no, this is terrifying for her because mm-hmm. she knows what happens if you do it wrong, if you, if you fail. Yeah. Like if, if it doesn't work out, she knows that that's going to destroy her all over again. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, that sense of loss, that sense of hope that gets just squelched, uh, is at the heart of the story. And she goes some really interesting places in this book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like literally. Yeah. And it, she has a real emotional journey. Um, so it's not, this is not just a depressing story, but it, mm. it starts from a place of real sadness. Uh, you know, and, and I think, yeah, absolutely. I put my own feeling of that into this book. Yeah. It's real interesting. So what's your, well, what's your current writing project? So, uh, I just finished a horror novel, which I sent off to my agent, which is exciting. And now the next thing I'm starting, and I've been playing with it, but I'm really going to start writing next week, is uh, another science fiction horror novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one's set much farther out in the future, a couple hundred years out in the future, and it's going to be called Supermassive, mm-hmm. and it is... I shouldn't say anything more because I haven't even started really working on it yet. Okay. And anything I tell you, anything I tell you is bound to change. Right? <laughs> That's fine. Um, so before you said, you know, people or publishers like to pigeonhole or even readers like to pigeonhole an author. It sounds like you're able to buck that a little bit. Um, yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. Uh, I've managed to do it in my career. I don't think I did myself any favors, though. I think if I had just stuck with zombie novels, vampire novels, uh, like I did in my, in my early career, I think I probably would be a lot more famous and a lot more rich than I am right now. Uh, instead, I said, hey, I want to write fantasy novels. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a trilogy of fantasy novels that absolutely tanked. They <laughs> did yeah. not sell any copies. Mm-hmm. It's so sad because I loved those <laughs> books. They were so much fun to write. Yeah. Uh, and I did, a, I did a bunch of thriller novels that did okay. And, you know, I'm 
coming back to horror now and I'm kind of establishing myself as a science fiction writer now, and every time it just feels like starting from, from square one. You know, it's, I think if I had been more focused on genre, I would be a lot more successful than I am now. But I also think, but I, I don't want, I, I, this isn't sour grapes. I've had incredible opportunities and I've gotten to write every book I wanted to write. Like, no one ever told me what to write. No one ever said, you, you need to write another vampire novel. Uh, you need to write another zombie novel. Uh, if I got tired of zombies, which I did for a long time, I took a break and did other things, you know, and then I went back to zombies later on. Like, I've loved my career. I've loved being able to write these books and make a living at it for as long as I have. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, but yeah, there is a real strong, uh, conception that writers are supposed to write, be, stay in one lane mm-hmm. that I think it just, it, it does none of us any good. Like I think every writer I know has ideas for fantasy novels. They have ideas for science fiction. They have ideas for mystery novels. They have ideas for heartfelt mainstream books about, you know, Midwestern uh, university professors going through divorces. Like, you know, it's the, it, when, when you're a writer, you come up with stories. You don't come up with genres. Right. And I think that if we were more, a little more forgiving of our, of our favorite writers, if we let them have a little more slack, there's no telling what they would come up with. Instead, we get things like, you know, George R. R. Martin wrote these incredible fantasy novels and then clearly, you know, got to a point where he didn't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know he'll finish that series, of course he will. But he, he, you know, the delays are not because he's excited about it. Right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, this is a guy who started as a science fiction writer. And mm-hmm. he wrote some really cool science fiction novels. Yeah. And nobody wants to hear that now. Nobody wants to hear George R. R. Martin is writing a science fiction novel because they want what they, they want another Game of Thrones book. And are we missing out on some incredible science fiction novel as good as Game of Thrones was Mm -hmm. just because we're demanding this author do what he did the last time? Yeah. I've spoken to, um, successful uh, franchise writers. I don't know if that's the right term. You know, the ones who write novels for a specific, like, movie or TV franchise. Um, Oh, sure, yeah. And they Mm -hmm. do very well, but then they have trouble convincing their their agent or publisher to do their own, you know, personal side work, you know? Yep. Um, There are people out there who are doing this to make money, and that's a little amazing to me because... There's not a lot of money in it, but you know, hmm. even for the tie-in writers like you're talking about, hmm. Tires, um, yeah. it's, this is not a job you do to get rich, but, uh, you know, there are people out there who just think of it as a business hmm. and that's not to say they're bad writers. It's just that their focus is on the marketing and on, you know, success. And that's totally legit. Hmm. It's not how I think about it. I think about books as stories that I want to tell. Mm-hmm. I want to entertain people. I want, I need, and I mean this in the most, you know, addiction, addiction level way. Like this is the darkest chamber of my heart, right? Mm-hmm. That I need 
people to read my book and say, Oh my God, that was such a great story. I did not see that coming. You know, that twist was fantastic. Or I loved this character, whatever. I need that. (laughs) The way comedians need a, need applause. Right. (laughs) So yeah, that's for me, that's what it's all about. Uh, it's not about making money. Yeah. Hey, that works. So where can people find you online? You have a website or social media? I have a website. It's davidwellington.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically just uh, tells you about the last astronaut, and I'll, put, I'll, I'll post news there from time to time. Mm-hmm. I have uh, Twitter. The my, my my main social media at this point is Twitter, mm-hmm. which is terrible. <laughs> uh, it's it, Twitter is evil, and and I hate it, uh, and that's why I look at it fifteen times a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so at, on Twitter, I'm at last trilobite, all one word. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and please don't contact me on Facebook because three months from now, I'll realize you tried to contact me on Facebook and I'll get really embarrassed that I didn't reply. <laughs> uh, but you can email me at contactmonster at hotmail.com. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a Hotmail account because I've been doing this for 20 years <laughs> and I'm not going to change it now. Um, but yeah, the, that's probably the best way if people have questions or they're, they want more information. So, uh, so again, your Twitter is at, can you spell that out? Last Trilobite, mm-hmm. L-A-S-T-T-R-I-L-O-B-I-T-E. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Just thank you so much for this. This was really fun. I, I love talking about my books, as you can probably tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. get me started. Hey, I why stop. not? Uh, I hope I didn't talk too fast. <laughs> no, no. It was great. It was great. Really interesting stuff. So, um, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page. Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.